Hello. I hope you'll enjoy this recording and consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, my talks are offered entirely without charge and supported by donations only. Please feel invited to stop by dharmapunksnyc.com, that's spelled with an X, to check out a chapter from my book, Unsubscribe, which arrives November 2017. And thank you. Many of the weeks I give talks on the intersections of psychology with the Dharma, and uh, very often that entails discussing how early childhood, infancy, relational experiences, i.e. the way we interact with our caregivers and our families, <coughs> create um, traits that will uh, endure for much of our lives. And I talk about the tools that help us address attachment styles and work issues that tend to be essentially structured by, again, those early experiences in life. I should note that it's probably 50% of our traits and our ingrained perceptions and behavioral patterns are set not only by early attachment or what we call nurture, but the other 50% would be produced by natural selection slash evolution, and that is what falls under the rubric of nature. So it's neither nature nor nurture, it's both that produces the attributes that we work with in our lives. Now you might well wonder how do we tell or discern which attributes are attributable to our early life experiences versus which attributes are uh, probably the product 1.8 million years of uh, the evolution we've had since the first version of Homo sapiens, I think Homo erectus or something like that happened 1.8 million years ago. So roughly the way you would tell is that uh, traits that are different in people, different in cultures, different in family systems, would certainly be uh, nurture, would be those traits produced by our early life experiences. On the other hand, Traits that are universal and are uh, largely operated by limbic structures would be those traits we would call natural or the product of natural selection. To understand why this is important, in general, a lot of the traits we have ingrained in our species no longer fit in any way the environment in which we live. Why is that? Well, of the 1.8 million years of our, you know, the, the extended species and the 200,000 years since our specific Homo sapien species uh, arrived, almost all of it was spent in hunter-gatherer collectives. And that was as different a social arrangement and a universe as imaginable than the world we live in today. So we all live in brains that have been essentially structured by natural selection, which is essentially a process that is entirely focused on keeping individuals alive long enough to procreate, and then that's all it cares about. Natural selection does not care about you living a nice, ripe old age, and it doesn't care 
or give a shit about how happy you are. It simply cares that you survive long enough to procreate. It's a rather grim... <laughs> it feels to me born-again Christian for some reason. But that <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, let's talk a little bit about the way the society to which our brains are actually programmed to live in. Hunter-gatherer societies were made up of small groups, if we could call them societies at all. You would spend your life in a group of a roughly about 10 to 12 adults at any given time, and a bunch of children, probably about half the 10 to 12, so roughly about 6 to 8 children at any given time. The, the groups were nomadic. We would travel most of the year, and this was because there was no agriculture. That, would, that shows up around 10,000 years ago, so the bulk of human history didn't have agriculture. There was no farming. It was simply foraging, and so we would move about very frequently, and we would hunt for berries, nuts, edible plants, and of course we would hunt for small animals as well, rabbits, etc., or fishing. And the reason we'd move around a lot is because uh, there would be no location that would have enough edible food that would last very long. Locations would have fruits and vegetables that would come and bloom for only short periods of time, and then that area would be no longer uh, forageable. So the groups were very nomadic by nature. Groups were parts of larger clans, and clans were essentially uh, a bunch of groups that could trace their lineage back to one or two original uh, ancestors, or you know, a single kinship, as it were. And it's most important to understand that your relationships were the most important thing in a hunter-gatherer society. You had to maintain uh, respect from other people in your group. You'd spend your entire life, most of your entire life, with these 10 to 12 other people. So their opinion of you mattered. If they viewed you as lazy, if they viewed you as someone who wouldn't share resources, and in the in hunter-gatherer society, sharing resources is everything, they would cast you out, which apparently was quite frequently done, and people would die as a result. If you were separated from your group, you would be picked off by other groups and most certainly perish very early on. So deeply wired into the right interior cingulate of human brains is social circuits, and this has been established by the neuropsychologist Matthew Lieberman. We have deeply hardwired neural circuits that punish us from doing anything that induces feelings of guilt, shame, associated with being selfish or hoarding. And um, another thing about the world is that it was extremely dangerous. The lifespans were exceedingly short in the 20s. Um, and so there was many different ways you could be killed at any given day if you went out of the huts or the wherever you were lodging and went in search of food, you could die every single day. There would be, of course, wild animals, there would be flash floods, there would be all kinds of diseases, there would but the most danger would be, of course, other groups, competing groups of humans 
that would view you as invading their territory and kill you without a blink of an eye. So um, the most important things were surviving and the uh, maintaining of relationships and gathering tools and, um, of course, the issue of how to overcome the fear of searching for food, given how dangerous it was. We'll see the neural implications of that, how much suffering it causes us in our lives in a moment. Modern life, if you haven't guessed it, is vastly different. You, on your commute down here, from wherever you came from, maybe work or from, an, uh, I don't know what you were doing. I'm not even going to try to guess. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it would be a waste of time to list everything you could possibly do, be doing. All right. But anyway, and your commute here, you saw more people than a hunter-gatherer would see in her or his entire lifetime. And that's worth thinking about. Food for you is plentiful. You can go into any corner and buy food to sustain you. Uh, dangers in our world are exceedingly scarce. We live in the safest time in history, and right now we're in the safest time of New York. I grew up in the 70s as a kid, and I can tell you that it was fucking dangerous. As uh, we, the brains that we have developed don't fit the world that we live in. And the Buddha called that one of the most important issues that faces all of us. Essentially, the Buddha asserted with his concept of awija or illusion, delusion, uh, not seeing the world correctly as it is, that it causes the, so much of the dukkha, the suffering, that, and that the spiritual process was addressing and being able to push past the ingrained false apprehensions of the world so that we can actually see the world as it is and not be uh, pushed into the ingrained reactions that no longer fit and essentially make us uh, highly defensive, reactive, uh, aggressive at times or threatened when we need not be. Now, I'm not saying that there's not times where we shouldn't be angered or threatened, but very often, as we'll see, um, there's a lot of unnecessary reactions that are caused by the way we perceive the world. Cognitive scientist Donald Hoffman, uh, who's very well established at the University of California, says that evolution shaped us with perceptions that allowed us to survive and guide adaptive behaviors to the way the world was. This involves hiding from us the stuff we don't need to know, and that's pretty much all of reality. The way the human mind works is we construct largely out of ingrained traits and also early experiences symbols for the world, symbols like the way a snake looks, the way an apple looks, the way a pie looks, the way a pizza looks, and we hold these symbols in our mind and we never actually see them most of the time. We just get a sense, oh, there's a pizza slice over there, and then we construct the symbol in our mind. It's a way that we can 
actually move quickly through the world without having to stop and see everything and perceive everything, which would severely slow us down and make us very vulnerable. So I'm going to talk about now some of the delusions that are, have been created by natural selection and evolution, and all of these delusions we can address through the tools that I'll be discussing towards the end, and then we'll put them into practice in the meditation. So one is the craving delusion. Lust promises us so much more than it actually delivers. Why is this? Well, in the past, in hunter-gatherer society, going out and foraging for food, or hunting, or trying to uh, <clears throat> accumulate water to bring back to a hut and the children, would be exceedingly dangerous, as we talked about, and I have used the word exceedingly three times, so I'm making a mental note not to do that again. In order to push us to risk our lives and to go out of our huts, the human brain essentially created dopamine boosts. But those dopamine boosts happen before we actually accomplish the task. They're there to motivate us to leave our huts and to face great risks. Once you accomplish your task, the dopamine goes away. And we all see this every day in our lives. Have you ever gone to Maybe you shopped for something online or at a store. I really need a new pair of shoes, goddammit. I can't go to the gym in these sneakers anymore. And so sneakers become the most important thing. And if I get these sneakers, then things will change. <laughs> the dopamine is flowing, and there's nothing else that matters to us but those sneakers or those uh, Lululemon running pants or yoga, whatever they are. And so we become transfixed. And then when you finally swipe the credit card and they give you the bag, and as you leave the store and walk down the street, the dopamine already starts to fade. And you realize, in fact, all the stresses in your life uh, that are still there. And by the time you get home, you might not even bother to take out the shiny new <laughs> sneakers and put them on. Because all the other issues that you've been keeping at bay suddenly uh, emerge. So, again, uh, the natural selection brain uh, essentially is to blame for this uh, tendency to focus our attention on one thing and to neurally reward us with this sense of importance and urgency and feel-good while we shop. In fact, <clears throat> they've done studies where they, you, if you look at somebody on Amazon shopping and you look at somebody's brain who's doing cocaine, guess what? They look identical because they're both plunged with dopamine. But in fact, most of the, Interestingly enough, most of the dopamine comes before you consume the cocaine, not that I'm urging you to do such a thing. <laughs> when I was thinking, oh, I've got to get a lighter pair of glasses, and I saw these cheap Ray-Bans, and I thought, oh, great, these will be terrific. And by the time the store popped my lenses into them and I walked out, <laughs> I immediately thought, oh, they don't look that good on me. <laughs> 
So <clears throat> the second way we are needlessly deluded, which is not just through craving people or things, new apartments, a car, a new bike, whatever it is, when you're in that craving, you know it, is because you can't really think about much else and you become driven. And I hope you know that feeling, because if you don't, I'm in awe of you. Uh, so the other, another example is feelings. The reason we have feelings is very simple. Feelings are internal sensations of comfort or discomfort. In the Buddhist time, it was known as Vedana. And the reason you feel good is to get you to approach another person or another situation, a situation that you're in, and relax. The reason you have negative feelings like tension in your stomach, tension in your chest, in your neck, in your throat, etc., is to get you to retreat, to avoid something. In other words, <clears throat> it's the approach and avoidance structures of feelings, as it's known. So we approach things that make us feel good, and we avoid things that make us feel bad. And it plays a massive amount. In fact, Damasio argues that feelings are the bulk determinants on how we behave and make choices. He calls them somatic markers. So we can say that feelings are true, as <coughs> Richard Wright, another evolutionary psychologist, argues, is if the things we feel good about are good for us, and we can say our feelings are false if the things we feel good about are actually bad for us. Are you following me? We have true feelings if the things we want to avoid are actually harmful, and we have false feelings or illusory feelings if the things we want to avoid are actually very healthy for us. <clears throat> have you ever noticed that sometimes your feelings lie to you? Let me give you an example. Uh, Wright uses this example, and I think it's a beautiful one. In the vast bulk of human history, uh, things that tasted sweet were always healthy. The sweetest thing in any environment would have been fruit, and it would have been actually very nutritious, and it would have been very healthy for you to consume. So for the vast bulk of our species history, anything that tasted sweet was a must to consume. And so guess what? We have been installed by natural selection to all have a sweet tooth. Cut to today, and guess what? You are now surrounded by sugar water, candies, sugars, and things that are actually not in any way nutritious or healthy for you. And as a result, we have an epidemic of diabetes and obesity directly because our brains are still programmed to consume anything that tastes sweet. Likewise, there are many opportunities in our life that would be beneficial that we wander away from because, again, in our ancestral past, if you were in any way asked to do a presentation or in any way be put on the spot before a group of other people, and you weren't thoroughly sure why and prepared and felt good about it and felt really assured, it would be bad news. Because again, any interaction would determine your entire fate very often. As a human being, if you were in any way ostracized by a group, you would die. So being thrust in front of people is one of the great human fears. There was a 
study that found that people are more scared of public speaking than death, which I find pretty strange. I mean, I don't like doing it always, but <laughs> that's pretty extreme. But you get the idea. We all have ingrained in us a tendency to not really feel good about going up and being viewed by other people, and that is directly attributable to essentially evolutionary programming. Another example of how much suffering that uh, evolution has instilled with us is that um, <clears throat> we all have a tendency to transform unknown stimuli into threats wherever possible. So if you're walking through the woods and you see a, sta a stick at your feet that even vaguely resembles a snake, if your brain doesn't know, it will turn it into a snake. And you'll jump and you'll be terrified. And it will do this for rustling in the woods. It will make you think it's a bear. Even though in one case, <laughs> I was meditating on a retreat in Thailand in the middle of this forest. And I heard a rustling. And I almost shit my pants. I leaped out. I yelled in this high-pitched voice. And this <clears throat> tiniest little baby pig looked at me. <laughs> nearly had a heart attack. I thought I was having a heart attack. We looked at each other. And then it went squealing off. And I just like nearly fainted. <laughs> and you might notice that when you're walking down any... Uh, dark alley, if you hear, or you're walking down the street, when you hear anything, you'll turn it into footsteps. There's this ingrained tendency, if we don't know what a stimuli is, to turn it into a threat to get us to react to a threat. Because guess what? Even if 99 times out of 100, it's a mistake, and we're needlessly terrified, from the perspective of natural selection, that's a success. Because in that one instance, it kept you alive. And it doesn't give a shit that it made you miserable 99 <laughs> times out of 100. The biggest <clears throat> example of uh, outgrown tendencies installed by natural selection is that we all give a lot more of a shit about what other people think about us than we actually should. As I explained uh, a couple of times, uh, you would spend your entire life with a very limited amount of people, and managing what other people thought about you was the most important endeavor, along with collecting food in your life. And that was instilled by the significant bulk of our history. So we scan people uh, all the time, and it makes us hypervigilant and anxious because we're constantly worried about what other people think when we no longer need to be. We live in societies now where if somebody thinks something negative about you, you can say, fuck that person, I'll just make a new friend. In hunter-gatherer societies, we couldn't do that, so we were primed to worry about what other people think about us, and that makes us constantly scan the faces of other people to pick up clues as to whether we think they like us or not. And guess what? That's why <clears throat> the fusiform gyrus is the fastest moving part of the human brain. It's the part of the brain that looks at other people's faces and reads their expressions and tries <coughs> to figure out if we're liked or not. That's been installed by evolution, and it causes so much suffering. Let me give you one of the studies that Wright mentions. Again, I think this is the most 
amazing clinical study I've read about. In the 1980s, they had this study where they uh, had a makeup artist put very realistic-looking scars on people that were really dramatic on their face, and these were volunteers. <clears throat> and so they said to people, okay, the scar's done, we want you to see it, and they'd show the person the scar in the mirror, and they'd say, oh my God, that looks really real, I look really deformed, it looks like I have this big open wound on my face. And so after they showed the person the image, they, the makeup artist would say, oh, I've got to do one more detail. What the people wouldn't know who were in the trial was that the makeup artist would wipe away the scar so that there was no longer anything on the person's face. Okay, you're following me? So people thought they had a scar, but in fact they didn't have one. So then they asked these people to go through a test where they would meet with various different strangers and talk with them. And they talked with several people and they would be filmed talking, the other person, you know, they'd be filming the other person. And then at the, end, at the end, they'd ask the people in the trial, how often were other people looking at your scar? <laughs> and people would say, all the time. They wouldn't look at anything else. They were just staring at my scar. And they would say, oh, really? And then they'd play back videos, not showing the person without the scar, but showing the other people and ask them to point out and say, yeah, there, 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 there. Look, he's looking directly at my scar. <laughs> so we're all doing that all the time in our lives. We all have what's called neurotic anxiety, which is the belief that there's something in us, emotions that are unlovable, feelings, something about me I've got to keep unseeable, but we're all worried at the same time that other people can see it. They can see our nervousness, our, our sadness, our, our disappointment, our boredom, whatever. We're always keeping something at bay, and we're always convinced that half the people we talk to can see it. And in fact, they don't. And this is all because of our history that we worry this much and we're constantly hypervigilant. And it doesn't need to be that way. So, to compensate for how much we worry, we tend to then overestimate how important we are. And that's another trait of evolution. There was a study, and I love this one, 95% of college professors, when asked, stated that their work is far superior to their peers, 95%. And this is of college professors, so you would assume they might be educated and not be that, uh, have that much hubris, but it's essentially built in to the human species to worry what other people think, and then to compensate for that worry by overestimating how important we are. So, the Buddha's key to seeing the world the way it really is is yatha bhutha nana dasana, which means seeing things as closer to the way they really are, as a way to living in our delusions. <clears throat> the Buddha didn't believe that there was such a thing as an objective truth. He said that no matter how close to the world you, can, you are perceiving uh, objects, no matter how real they seem, there will always be a distortion 
but he claimed that, as we see from these studies, that a vast majority of us, until we work on ourselves, are living in brain 1.0, and it's our job to upload or download, download, I guess, upload, whatever, <laughs> brain 2.0 through what we could call spiritual practice. <clears throat> the first tool is stated in the Bahia Sutta where the Buddha said, uh, see only what is seen, hear only what is heard, perceive only what is perceived. And how do we do this? By taking the me or the I out of the experience. So as much as possible when experiencing, try to stop adding the sense that this is happening to me, this is all about me, I'm, uh, I'm at the center of this. All that verbiage and narration cuts away at the time we have to actually see and perceive what's really going on. If in the middle of a date, uh, you're on Tinder, I'm old, I don't have to do this, but I'm just making a, a stab at what some people might be doing. You go on Tinder, somebody swipes right, is it right? When they like you, they swipe right, I don't know. And uh, they, you go on a date, and there will be this tendency to think that they're evaluating you all the time. And we will not then be able to perceive that they might be actually nervous themselves or caught up in their own story. It's only by taking the eye, the perception, what are they thinking about me, how is this going to go for me, and just devoting your resources, your perceptual resources to what's called exteroception, taking in, taking your time, and actually perceiving and asking questions that you can break through that evolutionary trade. The second core way, and this is what we'll really be practicing, is <clears throat> relaxing the underlying feelings, because again, it's feelings that generally push us very often. Sometimes they're very useful, sometimes they push us entirely in the wrong direction, to be frightened of things we need not to be frightened about, to be completely filled with craving and desire for things that won't make us lastingly happy. And the way we work with this is by developing uh, tolerance for feelings and not allowing them to push us around and to be able to regulate feelings, especially when we have a suspicion that the feelings might be essentially false feelings, pushing us towards things that aren't good for us. People, very often, for example, people wind up with repetition compulsion dating the same inappropriate, unavailable people when they want a relationship because they follow their feelings. And if we do that, the way we can get out of that pattern is by developing a way to acknowledge, observe the feelings until they pass, learning how to soothe feelings, and then we can also begin to see the world as it really is without the distortion of this underlying urge or this underlying retreat, which is so powerful. So with that, we're going to meditate. I hope that was worth listening to in some way.
So come to a really comfortable seated position, and if possible, that involves balancing your body in a upright way. Essentially, see if you can keep your ears in line with your shoulders and your shoulders in line with your hips. And most important, don't allow your head to slouch in front of your chest if at all possible. So a good way to do that is to tilt your head a little bit back like you're looking at a really tall building. So the goal is to see if we can cultivate that sense of really arriving in life. Like you've traveled a long distance to a destination, you've got there, and now you put down your bags. <clears throat> and you settle into a nice seat, and you have that feeling of there's no longer anywhere you need to go. There's nothing you need to do or get done. And you don't need to worry about what anybody thinks about you. Nobody you need to appease or please. <clears throat> no need to wear any social mask. So one way I like to achieve this state is by Taking a nice full in-breath through the nose. And as you do so, lift your shoulders up and hold them up, hold them up. Great. And then breathe out through the mouth and drop the shoulders. <clears throat> and if it feels good to you, gently pull your shoulders back. Say, open up your chest. Let's take a second deep in-breath through the nose and pull in the belly, the abdominal muscles really taut. And hold them in, hold them in, hold. And then breathe out through your mouth. And a nice soft belly. Relaxing the abdominal muscles. <clears throat> Both the shoulders, which open up the chest, and the abdomen are... We're working with the vagal vagus nerve, which is the chief nerve that reports emotions and feelings to the frontal lobe. So when you have a relaxed belly and a relaxed shoulders and open chest, you're telling the lowest structures of your limbic system, I'm okay, I'm safe, I can relax, I'm not in danger. I can see the world closer to the way it really is than the way I've been programmed to see it. Let's take a third breath and squinch the muscles in the face really tight. Really tight. And then breathe out. And just soften the micro muscles around the eyes and release the jaw. And just allow... your face to settle. And just remember, you've got nowhere to go, nothing to do. 
You don't need to care about what anybody thinks about you. You can just wear whatever expression you feel like. You're completely safe. And just allow your breath to come to a natural rhythm. If you're really tired, you can hold in breaths for several beats and even open up one eye while you're holding the breath and then close it as you breathe out. If you're really anxious, your mind is jumping about, then try to allow your out-breaths to be twice or three times as long as the in-breath. Just release very slowly the out-breath and make it as smooth as possible. Long exhalations also are a way of speaking to the fear center of the brain, the amygdala. It tells it that if we're breathing really long, Exhaling really long, it's telling your brain that you're not under any threat. And human beings tend to breathe needlessly fast, given how safe our world is. It's like we're all have engines that are idling too fast. So for a while, we're going to sit in silence. And you can either just feel your body breathing, the actual sensations, counting in-breaths and out-breaths, if you'd like, one on the in, two on the out, three on the in, four on the out. But pay most attention to the pause after the out-breath before the next in. That's when we tend to lose awareness of the body breathing. So give all your energy, your effort there. If you don't like listening, I mean, observing the breath, then listen to the sounds surrounding you without adding any story or judgment or image about what's creating. Just hear sounds as they are. That's a good exercise for seeing the the world the way it is. Take away the storytelling and just hear the sounds. What will happen is a thought will come along and whisk you away because the brain over many years of habit discerns that when we are relaxed and closing our eyes, that's the time we think. So to actually get out of that habit and to just focus on the body takes a lot of practice. Don't judge criticize, become impatient, none of that helps. In fact, it only makes it far more difficult to get the joy and ease out of meditating. If nothing else, even if your brain, your mind never settles, just spending a half hour not criticizing yourself, being compassionate and kind, is such a better use. And also, 
thinking has been shown to be one of the most stressful endeavors. It uses the default mode network. Whereas observing the breath has actually been shown to be not only very reparative of key structures of the brain, but it's actually, over time, exceptionally soothing.
So at this point, see about releasing the observance of the breath or hearing of sounds. You can allow those sensations to still be present, of course, but not in the foreground of your attention. And then bring to mind, in detailed a way as possible, an image of something that brings about often a great degree of insecurity and discomfort. For some people that might be suddenly asked to speak at a wedding reception, to visualize yourself suddenly being thrust onto a stage surrounded by two or three hundred people who you don't know looking at you, expecting a degree of eloquence. Try to make it as detailed as possible and feel yourself up there. Or if that doesn't elicit any concern, perhaps traveling alone, being in a foreign country, not speaking the language. Insert your own image. The goal is to evoke some of this old programming that worries excessively about situations that are not really that threatening or nowhere near as threatening as we perceive them. If we made a complete fool of ourselves in front of people, most of the time we won't see them again. And even if we do, most of the time people are too busy thinking about themselves, but still, we don't get that. It's programmed in us to worry how we are perceived by others. So visualize some situation that is generally really uncomfortable. For me, anything involving a wedding is uncomfortable. <laughs> And then see if you can feel some of the discomfort that you would feel normally in this situation. Something that you're dreading, visualize it. Feel the feelings urging you to flee which creates the nervousness and the anxiety. <clears throat> You'll find maybe a slight tightness in the belly. Maybe the breath will become shallow or quick. Maybe the shoulders will begin to tense and pull forward, or maybe the jaw will lock. Just find the underlying feelings urging you to flee. And one by one, relax them. The breath is shallow. Start making the breath full and long, still while holding that threatening image. Soften the belly. Drop the shoulders and open up the chest. <coughs> 
All these tools are way we tell the fear circuits which have been ingrained by natural selection that we're safe. Long exhalations, soft belly, open chest, relaxed jaw. I'm safe. None of this really matters. Now let's take another example. Visualize something that you really, really, really want. This could be an object. It could be a relationship, a new apartment, a new job. Something that presents itself as a solution. And while there's nothing wrong with Wanting any of those things, craving, makes us make poor choices. So visualize the thing that you really, really want. And then once again, relax whatever parts of the body tense as a way to urge you towards it, or any of the underlying feelings. You might find craving to be in the muscles in the neck or the throat, a feeling in the eyes. Find that part of the body that tells you, I must have this. And just relax it. So whenever you're ready, let go of those images, take a nice, comfortable breath. And whenever you feel it's time, gently open up your eyes just enough to take in the floor in front of you. If you look around the room too quickly, sight will push out of awareness the sensations of your body, the breath, feelings. It's only by keeping in contact with feelings that we can do this work. Constant 
Mindfulness means being aware of the sensations going in, going on internally. And through mindfulness, we can both integrate emotions, but also dismantle feelings that push us to be frightened of what's no longer threatening, or crave what is not going to de- deliver lasting happiness. And whenever you're ready, you can open your eyes. <laughs>